Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 2, 25 through 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now if you'll turn to Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, page 716 in the Pew Bibles. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He who grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. The word of the Lord. The season of Advent helps us to prepare our hearts for the birth of Christ. The four weeks leading up to Christmas anticipate the arrival of our promised Savior who brings hope, love, joy, and peace to all who trust in Him. And this Advent season at Kenwood, we've been looking together at God's promise that He made to His people through the prophet Isaiah. Central to Isaiah's prophecy is the figure of the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is described in four beautiful poems, some of the most beautiful poetry in the entire Bible. In Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53, the promise of the servant of the Lord is of a coming Savior who will be the hope of Israel, who's been prepared by the Father's love, whose life is marked by a joyful obedience, and whose coming accomplishes our peace. And that is our subject this morning on the fourth Sunday of Advent, Christmas Sunday. The candle of peace has been lit, and we consider this morning from the Word of God the coming of Christ into the world to accomplish peace on our behalf. 
We've been looking through the eyes of Simeon, this elderly believer that Luke presents before us. I still imagine him to be someone that I would love to be related to. And in fact, in Christ, we have relatives like this. Isn't this great that we have a huge family of faith? Hebrews tells us that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and Simeon is part of that cloud. Simeon is given by God by the Holy Spirit, a revelation that he is going to see the Lord's salvation. The Spirit of God promised him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and it is this scene, a riveting scene for us of the first Christmas. Simeon's hope for the consolation of Israel is a deep connection with the counsel of Scripture. It's the hope that God gave to His people that after the exile that He would act again. God would act and this engenders hope for His people. God would comfort those who mourn by His love. He would provide forgiveness for us and give everlasting joy and His salvation would shine forth and radiate peace to all nations. This is the hope unique to the Scriptures. We hear it thundering in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry that her war is ended, her iniquity pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double or a full recompense for her sins. We've been looking the last several weeks at each servant's song. The first servant song, Isaiah 42, we saw the servant promised as the hope of Israel. We saw in Isaiah 49 that the servant was prepared for a sacred mission, prepared in the womb by the Father's love. We saw last Sunday that the servant's life is characterized by a joyful and complete obedience to God. And this morning we turn to look at the servant's mission carried out in the moving description of the fourth and longest of the servant songs, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the Swiss Alps of the Bible. It's one of the high points in the entire counsel of the Lord. The chapter divisions of the Bible were not added until the medieval period, and sometimes the chapter breaks are slightly off. Stephen Langton put the chapter breaks in while he was riding on horseback to Paris, so we should be gracious. Sometimes you put the line in the wrong place when you're doing this on a trip. The, the unit of the fourth servant song actually begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and it goes all the way through to the end of chapter 53. But it is in this portion, this fourth servant song, that we find out why Christmas must be celebrated for millennia. We find out really the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of peace on earth, that peace is something that is accomplished, achieved, gained, won by the offering of the servant for your sins and mine. This is sacred ground this morning, and we want to look carefully at this precious passage and see how it comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Keep your Bible open then to Isaiah 53. Beginning in 52.13, the servant is introduced, identified. Behold, this is my servant. The Lord is the speaker. The servant is said to act wisely, with insight. The term that's used here in verse 13 is the term in Hebrew for a renaissance. A term of wisdom. A term of understanding of God's will faithfully carried out. The servant acts not only with wisdom, but right at the beginning of the song, the servant is said to be exalted. 
He is high. He is lifted up. He is exalted above all. The servant of the Lord is set at the pinnacle of our affections at the very first stanza of the poem. So too, at the very end in Isaiah 53, the servant is exalted. The song begins with exaltation, it ends with exaltation, and yet the reason for his exaltation is described throughout the movement of the poem then. The servant's exaltation, as the poem begins to unfold, seems surprising. In verse 14, we see that though the servant is exalted, we read that many people are astonished at him. They're astonished because the servant of the Lord's appearance is marred. His appearance is marred beyond recognition. His form is disfigured beyond that of the children of mankind. And this is a surprising move in the poem. Though the servant is said to receive our adoration, our exalt, he is exalted above all. When we look at the servant, his figure is marred. And yet we read that the reason for this marring is in verse 15. Thus so shall the servant sprinkle many nations and kings will close their mouths on account of him. There is a stunned silence among the nations by the, at the servant of the Lord. Verse 15's phrase is a crucial one for us to understand the mission of the servant. The servant comes to sprinkle the nations As I looked at this closely this week in my office, I burst into tears to look at the description of the servant's task. What is the sprinkling that the servant accomplishes? The language that's used here of the servant is the language that's used in Leviticus to describe the application of the offering of sin for the sin of God's people. The servant of the Lord sprinkles the nations Remember in Leviticus 4, when God's people sin unintentionally, when they sin and and do things that ought not to be done, there is a provision made for forgiveness, and that provision is made through substitutionary atonement. An animal is offered in behalf of the sinner. The priest takes the animal that is dedicated to God, slaughtered, and he takes some of the blood and brings it to the tent of meeting. And in Leviticus 4, 6, the priest dips his finger in this blood and sprinkles. And here is this key term. The servant of the Lord himself sprinkles the nations. Blood atonement is made. And it is blood atonement for you and for me that causes the nations to close their mouths in speechless wonder. Christmas has a sacred silence at its heart for when we see the work of the servant promised and fulfilled, we are amazed. Isaiah says that to see this and understand it requires faith. He asks the question, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The mission of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 requires faith to see its grandeur. In verse 2, we read that the servant comes in apparent insignificance and weakness. He grows up like a tender or young plant, like a root out of dry ground. The servant comes with no form or majesty that we should look at him. There is weakness in the servant's arrival, in his advent. There is no physical beauty that would draw our attention to him. The coming servant does not grab our attention. He does not compete for it. It's possible to miss the servant. 
And in fact, those who see him consider him of slight regard. The servant is despised. He is rejected. We read that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief or suffering. Many today are inclined to pass by Christmas, to move past the manger, as though these are not the greatest events that humanity has ever seen. In verse 3, we read that the servant is like one from whom men hide their faces. He's despised. We esteem him not. Humanity regards the servant as of slight regard. And yet Isaiah tells us that the servant surely actually has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. The servant has a mission to carry the sin of humanity. And yet humanity sees him and regards him not. Sees him stricken, afflicted by God. And yet Isaiah describes that the mission of the servant is to be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah tells us that the chastisement that brings peace, here's the crucial term, that brings us peace, is upon him. That the servant of the Lord comes into this world to carry the sin of humanity. He is the hope of Israel. He is prepared in the Father's love. His life is characterized by joyful obedience. And the servant's arrival in this world accomplishes peace. He does not just declare it. He achieves it. The servant of the Lord carries the day. And he carries the day by bearing a punishment that we deserve The servant's stripes or wounds bring about healing for us. As the poetry of Isaiah 53 continues to unfold, Isaiah predicts 700 years before the arrival of Christ this narrative. Look at it in the text. Not only is the servant come in weakness, not only is he disregarded, we read that the servant is the one who is oppressed, afflicted, The servant is led to a slaughter like a sheep before its shears is silent. He opens not his mouth. The servant is tried and speaks no word in his defense. The servant is judged in verse 8 and then the servant is executed. He is cut off from the land of the living. The servant is buried with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he was innocent. And yet we read as the poem unfolds that the servant's suffering, his dying, his wrongful accusation was nothing less than the will of God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And we read that when the servant has made his life an offering for guilt, his life is offered like the offerings in Leviticus. His life is presented It is his offering is received and we read that on the other side of this accomplishment of peace that the servant is raised from the dead. After he has made his life an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and out of the anguish of his soul, he will be satisfied. And once the servant is raised from the dead, he will do this extraordinary thing. He will make many to be righteous. By his shed blood, he will justify the many. And in the end, concluding scene of this majestic poem, that the servant who justifies the nations 
receives a portion with the great and is exalted. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah's promise of Isaiah 53, his description of the ministry of the servant of the Lord and his accomplishment of peace is the fuel for our hope, for our love, our joy, and our peace this Christmas. It is the promise of his coming, his advent, to which Simeon rejoices in the scene of Luke 2. When he sees the infant Jesus come into the temple, Simeon says, Lord, let your servant depart now in peace. Here is the place where peace is accomplished. Let me depart in peace, for I have seen your salvation. And it is salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation for the nations and glory for Israel. Brothers and sisters, the overwhelming conviction of the New Testament is that Isaiah's promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, born of Mary, who grew to manhood, carried our sins, sickness, and rebellion on the cross, where he suffers a shameful death that atones for sin and ends the war between mankind and God. Isaiah 53 is quoted or alluded to more than 35 times in the New Testament. It is the greatest passage cited of all. Jesus echoes this language in the upper room in Matthew 20, verse 28, when he says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Paul describes the work of the servant when he says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 5 says, walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us an offering, a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Hebrews 10 says, We have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And by this one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are made holy. Peter says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Isaiah 53 is overwhelming. It points so vividly, so clearly, so dramatically in such specific detail to the coming of Jesus that we might rightly ask, how could anyone not believe this? Is it possible to read this passage 700 years before its fulfillment and not see that this points directly to the incarnation, birth, life, perfect obedience, suffering, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is it possible? Whenever I read Isaiah 53 or discuss it with others, I'm often asked the question, how could anyone not see this? Sometimes people come in a little closer. Like the time when I went golfing with a friend. I was golfing with a rabbi in training. And we got to the golf club we unloaded our clubs from the trunk and the man who came up this was kind of a nice nice golf course he he saw us struggling to get our clubs out and he said oh let me get those and uh he put our clubs in the cart and he recognized somehow that my friend was jewish 
And so uh, he put my clubs in the back of the, of the club cart, and he put his, and before he had even cinched the strap, he turned to my friend, no introduction, and he just said, what do you make of Isaiah 53? <laughs> and I, I thought, that was a little insensitive, actually, but I, I, thought, I thought, no transition, um, my, my Jewish friend kind of stumbled, and he said, um, well, uh, you know, some people interpret it this way, some, some this way. He wasn't ready to engage. But it begs the question, though, doesn't it? How can anyone read this passage and not see the direction to which it points? Why don't all Jews recognize the arrival of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of Isaiah's great promise. My first response to this question is to remind us that many Jews did receive. And many continue to do so today. 25% of the city of Jerusalem responds with belief to the earliest Christian preaching. All of the authors of the New Testament except Luke are Jews who said he is the promised one. Many continue to respond in faith to him today. Like Mitch Glasser, who grew up in a nominal Orthodox Jewish family, and yet through reading the scripture came to see that Jesus is the hope of Israel. He is the promised one. In his zeal and exuberance, he came back to his family upon receiving Jesus as Messiah and Savior And he thought, I'll just read Isaiah 53 to my whole family and they'll all believe. He tells the story himself. He says, I returned to my home in New Jersey months after receiving Christ on fire for the Lord Jesus. I explained my decision to receive Christ to my parents with no small amount of dread. And their response was as bad as I had feared. Although they disagreed on whom to blame for my decision, they agreed that I had to leave the home. They informed me that I was not permitted to speak to my grandparents, my neighbors, or my sisters about my belief in Jesus. My mother also prohibited bringing crosses into the house, going to church, and reading the New Testament. That memorable evening, supposed to be my last night in my home, I asked my mother if I could show her why I believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I read her Isaiah 53, fully expecting her to see the prophet's reference to Jesus. I expected that she would repent and accept Jesus as her Messiah, leading the way for the conversion for the whole entire rest of my family. Instead, By the time I reached verse 7, my mother had fallen asleep. I woke her up. I asked her if I could keep reading. She nodded in a sleepy stupor, and I finished the passage. And I asked her, so what do you think? She said to me, I told you not to read the New Testament to me. Though that might seem like a strange statement, it is not. Most Jewish people are unfamiliar with the Bible. Even those who are familiar 
are, are unfamiliar with Isaiah and find him foreign. I said, Mom, that's not the New Testament. Isaiah is a Jewish prophet. And her response was, I don't care. Don't ever bring this up to me again. Why don't most Jews believe? Brothers and sisters, it's actually the same reasons why most of the rest of the world doesn't believe. The reason why we don't believe is that we're unfamiliar with this glorious passage. If we left Kenwood Baptist Church this morning and interviewed each of us, ten people on the street, and asked them, are you familiar with the detailed prophecy that predicts the arrival of Christ in weakness, that he would be tried and executed though he had done no wrong, that he would be wrongfully condemned, that he would be buried, that he would rise from the dead with his shed blood, offer you forgiveness? Do you know that? Most people of those ten, I imagine, would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. People are unfamiliar with this particular passage. People do not understand or believe that God can promise 700 years beforehand what he intends to do. Do you believe that this morning? Most people around us, the ten that you will just talk about today, most people do not understand or believe in the power of sin. Most people do not understand or believe in blood atonement. Most people do not understand or believe that God could take on human flesh and offer himself for sins. Most people do not understand or believe in the bodily resurrection from the dead. And maybe most decisive of all, most people have never met or interacted with someone who could explain these things and who lived in such a way that demonstrated their reality. Why do most Jews not believe The same reason that most of the rest of the world doesn't believe. Simeon himself, after this burst of praise that he had seen God's salvation here in Christ, he turns to Jesus' own parents. Joseph and Mary marveled at what Simeon had said about this infant redeemer and king. Simeon blessed them and that he turned to Mary and he said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many and for a sign that will be opposed. And Simeon said, And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. You see, every one of us, no matter what our ethnicity, must respond to Christmas, must respond to the clarity of Isaiah 53. We must respond, is there a God out there who not only knows the future, 
but has planned it and is bringing it about? Each of us must decide this morning, do I believe that what is fundamentally wrong in the universe is my sin, my war against my heavenly Father? Each of us must decide this morning, do I believe in the possibility that I could be forgiven? Some of us think that what we've done is too great. And we think God's hand, God's arm is too short to save us. Each of us must decide this morning, can God, who made humanity in his image and likeness, actually lay aside his heavenly glory and take on human flesh? Each of us must decide this morning, not only can God take on human flesh, but can he live a life of perfect obedience and offer that flesh for your redemption and mine? Do we believe in the resurrection of the dead? Do we believe this morning that he has called each of us not only to understand and believe, but to be his ambassadors of this great news in the world? You see, Mitch Glasser knew that to receive Christ meant that Christ should be shared. And he went to his family, longing that each of them would know Christ. He spent the last several decades of his life sharing Christ. It's my longing this morning that there would be no one here this morning outside of Christ's peace. The requirement this morning is to believe and receive this promise. Accept God's diagnosis of our condition and receive his remedy in Jesus Christ. For those of us who know Christ this morning, then Isaiah 53, its fulfillment in the Gospels, presents a challenge to us. It's a challenge to us that the more deeply we understand the scriptures that Jesus used, the closer we come to understand the heart of Jesus, and the more we have a clearer understanding of our own mission in light of his. Christmas doesn't make us passive. The peace of God accomplished on our behalf makes us active. And this spirit of servanthood written into the prophetic vision of the servant of the Lord, lived out in the ministry of Jesus, becomes the motive and the method of all Christian living. The Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve. Jesus told his disciples, the kings of the nations exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Let the greatest among you Become as the youngest, as the leader, as one who serves. Behold, I am among you as one who serves. Paul says that Christ became this servant to show God's truthfulness, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs and that the nations might glorify God. Brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, if you have received his peace, then I want to challenge you to drink deeply Drink deeply of this spirit of servanthood and weave it into your life this Christmas. Serve those around you. 
Share your Christmas table with someone who has no place to go. Serve the least and vulnerable in imitation of Christ. Open up your heart to continue the servant's mission in the world today. Sharing him, asking those around you if they know him, be ready to explain the truths of Scripture and to model the truths of Scripture and how you live and conduct yourself. Have this mind among you, which is in Christ. Though in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Merry Christmas. Jesus Christ has come. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, We exalt you this morning. We join in the imagery of Isaiah 53 that you are exalted, that you rightly deserve the highest place for you have carried out the will and mission of God. And Lord Jesus, we sing this morning of love incarnate, love divine, the Savior born for us. Lord Jesus, we exalt you because you came not only to this world, you came to suffer and die on our behalf. Lord, we know who you are in truth by your resurrection from the dead. And we proclaim you this morning. Father, I pray if there is any here this morning standing on the outside of the peace of Christmas. And I invite them now to open their heart to Jesus Christ. Simply to say, Lord Jesus, I I confess my need for you. Would you take my sin, wash it away, the sprinkling of your blood, and bring me inside the peace that you have accomplished for me. Lord Jesus, I pray for every one of us who who does know Jesus Christ, that our lives this week, that our celebrating this week, that our giving would be more than our receiving, and that we would embody in our own life and context the spirit of servanthood that Jesus, you have set before us as a lordly example. We love you this morning, Lord Jesus. It is a Merry Christmas Sunday. There is peace between God and man, a peace that you have accomplished for us. Hallelujah. Amen.